Welcome to Shine, a child and youth development podcast brought to you by Catalyst Family Inc. I am Valerie Kelly, and with me is my co-host, Allie Ladio. If you are a parent, teacher, or work in a childcare setting, our podcast is for you. On Shine, we interview experts in child and youth development, share helpful parenting resources and advice, and provide you with inspiring stories as well as practical advice for supporting your family, community, classroom, and beyond. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Shine, inspiring conversations around children, family, and early child development. (laughs) Our experts today come from Catalyst Kids. Hello, ladies. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hello. Hello. Do you mind introducing yourselves to our audience? Yes, absolutely. My name is Sarah Ritchie, and I'm a program coach for Catalyst Kids. I've been in the field since 2008 and an um, early childhood education enthusiast ever since um, I was in middle school after watching my mom in the field. Um, I started out in the field as a sub, and now I work as a program coach uh, where I mentor um, other teachers in the field as well as families, helping them reach their programmatic and educational goals for their children. And my name is Alexis Hughes. I go by Lexi. I am an early childhood educator in the field. I currently have my BA in early childhood development. I started teaching about eight years ago, and I work through with mentoring and supporting other teachers in the field, where I now work at Catalyst Kids as a site supervisor at the South Lake Tahoe location. And I continue to mentor those other teachers in the field of early childhood education. All right. So the importance of play, especially as we head into the summer months, is more important than ever. We're slowly transitioning into this new normal as we grow closer to post-pandemic. For this particular episode, as things reopen and it's physically possible to be together again, we're focusing on the importance of play in nature. Kids will be returning to summer and day camps. So with that in mind, uh, could you tell us what are the benefits of playing in nature? That's an excellent question. Um, And actually, it's a lot more challenging of a question to, or a a lot more challenging of a term to define, if you believe it or not. Um, So play-based learning actually has two core definitions. So the first definition is um, the natural definition, where um, natural, uh, basically it's the natural process. So learning through play is both represented in, in, oh, sorry, blah, blah, let me start that again. (laughs) Um, so for, oh, I looked at the wrong place. Okay. So it's actually a much more difficult term to define. Um, the primary two buckets of a definition for play-based learning is, um, falls within the nature side and then how that's converted to education. So let's talk about the nature one first. So, um, learning through play or play-based learning refers to that natural process that happens where it relies on firsthand experiences to form neurological connections in the brain. This is actually present in both animals and humans. So it's interesting if you were to go online right now and Google play-based learning research, you'll find just as much, if not more, (laughs) articles around animal behavior (laughs) than people behavior, which is kind of an interesting tidbit. Um, But if you'll see, and and just for an example of how this presents itself in nature, um, if you have a pet cat, right, and you know how when you walk by your bed and your cat jumps out from underneath and attacks your feet, right, Um, that is the cat's way to play in their natural environment. And at the same time that they're playing, they're practicing their hunting skills. It's something that's built into them, right, biologically. Now, looking at this for humans, um, humans, if you look at babies, they naturally try to use all of their senses at one time to explore the environment and the world around them. So you'll see babies put things in their mouth. You'll see them, you know, um, just watch everything very intently, trying to take in everything, hear everything. I know my one-year-old nephew now, he literally takes his whole body now and just throws it on top of things to see what happens, right? <laughs> like he'll just like body slam everything around him. So you have to be sure that there's no hard objects right around him, right? Um, so the same kind of thing. The It's a biological response where we try to experience as much as we can to be able to build those neurological connections that then give us the knowledge that we need to survive and live in 
the world around us, right? So now let's talk about that second definition of learning through play and in an educational sense, which is what we're going to be talking about in this podcast. So basically, learning through play from an educational standpoint basically harnesses that natural process into an educational strategy to try to make sure that when we're relaying knowledge to um, our children, that it's instilling it into them so that way it creates lifelong memories. Um, an example of um, how this is kind of, you know, I guess uh, articulated in the educational um, world of things um, is through this book called Lisa Murphy on Play, The Foundation for Children's Learning. Um, Lisa does an amazing job describing how um, children naturally learn through play and how it is a very efficient way to relay information and just how to fully support and, and build that foundation in the children that you serve with their, with their play. Um, one of the, just an excerpt from her book that I thought was really um, important to remember um, is that Howard Gardner um, is a, a child development theorist, and he basically um, speaks about crystallizing moments and the idea that at any given moment, we as adults could be facilitating an experience that makes a lifelong impact for the child that we serve or the children that are in our life, right? And that's whether it's a friend, it's your child directly, like biologically your child, or if it's a student that you serve. Um, we as adults never know when a crystallizing moment is going to happen. It could be positive. It could be a negative one. Um, you never know. Um, that's why it's so important to be present the whole time. And so one of the, um, the, the ways that we capitalize on that theory of crystallizing moments is that we make sure that in the educational side of learning through play, that we're enriching our environments and enriching our interactions with children so much. So then that way we're not only creating positive crystallizing moments, but that we're creating this potential and providing an unlimited potential for children to fully explore the world around them develop their own neurological connections, and then at the same time, be able to translate that into their development as they grow up and go through school. Um, one final takeaway that I'll say about learning through play and also incorporating nature is that if you look at um, the uh, Reggio Emilia approach, um, especially that we utilize in our centers through Catalyst and also um, many programs around the world actually utilize the um, Reggio Emilia approach as well. Um, they really emphasize the importance of nature in an environment. And a lot of times, sometimes it could be misinterpreted as, oh, it's just aesthetic. Like, let's just make sure everything is backed in black and let's make sure to use like nature colors. And then that's it. You know, like sometimes it can be very misinterpreted. But um, one of the key principles of that Reggio approach is actually the use of language of uh, nature as a teaching tool. So for example, if you're using rocks to count or you're using sticks to make art um, or to learn about your letters, you're using sticks to create your letters, right? Every time that you see rocks, you're going to think about that math experience that you had. Every time that you use sticks, you're going to think about that literacy activity that you did, right? I remember one of my earliest memories of kindergarten. I don't know why this is coming to my brain now, um, but my kindergarten teacher used to use those plastic multicolored bears, right, to teach us math. And at the same time that she would teach us math with those bears, as a reward, she would give us actual gummy bears. So it's so funny because now as an adult, and it's happening right now, anytime I think or see those little plastic bears, I start to salivate because I start to think of those gummy bears that she gave us. But I remember how she taught us to count. And I literally right now could recreate for you exactly how she taught us how to count just using those bears and gummy bears because of that. So um, I think it's, it's really cool to see how play-based programs can really harness that natural process of our sensorial response to learning and the sensory re response to the environment around us and really maximize the, the learning potential that we have. Perfect. So uh, we mentioned environment. So with that being said, how do you enhance play in the classroom environment? That's a great question. Um, for this piece, it's a few sections that I will be talking about. It's going to be diving into that teacher's role, the environment's role, scaffolding um, using Lev Vygotsky, and the class tool. Um, the first part we're going to talk about is that teacher's role and the environment. In the play-based environment, it's really the teacher's job to ensure that children have access and exposure to a variety of materials 
real learning. So what we're looking for is the access of being able to have access to real learning. Um, one of the things that I really enjoy is that when you're looking at the materials in the classroom, you can take a look and make sure, do they have the basic areas? You know, one of the key things you're looking for in quality care, right? Looking at those basic areas in the classroom. And when you're looking at the basic areas in the classroom, then you can really ask the question, what does real learning look like in the classroom? What does it look like in a play-based program? One of the things that I found is that a lot of people often confuse the both of play-based environment, academic program, and they often think that the two are separate. One of the things that I think is great is that you actually don't have to choose. There is a way for the teacher in the classroom to identify both and to integrate both in the classroom. And I think that's really great because that's one of the things that uh, we strive to do in our classrooms here at the center is really making sure that we honor both of those key pieces for the teacher to actively support the children in the environment. The teacher in the environment, they are responsible for the environment. So the teacher's responsibility in that environment really allow for real world, ex real world experiences. Please tell them I said real world, real world experiences. Um, scratch that piece out. I'm going to start over where I said teachers allow. Okay. So um, teachers are responsible for the environment. And one of the responsibilities that they have is that they allow for real world experiences to happen in that environment. Um, one of the things that Sarah touched based on, again, time and nature, you know, are they going outdoors? Are they spending time in their outdoor environment? What kind of natural questions are we asking about that environment around them? How much time are we spending with them in that environment? And the time piece is essential because it's more than just, okay, good job. I see you over there. I like what you're doing. It's really going a little deeper than that. Um, one of the examples that I think about um, when I was a teacher, I was in the dramatic play area playing with my friends. One of my favorite areas in the classroom, if you know Miss Lexi, you'll find me in the dramatic play area. So we were playing um, restaurant and the teacher had enriched that environment by providing menus in the area, um, not menus that, you know, are just child menus, but real actual restaurant menus um, for that real life experience. And the student picked up the menu and gave me the menu said, have a seat. Tell me your order. And I said, oh, wow. OK, what kind of restaurant is this? And he goes, it's Italian restaurant. Wow, an Italian restaurant. Well, what are you going to serve at your Italian restaurant? I asked the child. The child response to me says, I'm going to serve mixed spaghetti. And I said, oh, you're serving spaghetti? Um, one of the things that's important about this interaction is that correction of the word. So I just said, oh, you're serving spaghetti. And then the child repeated back, yes, yes, I'm serving spaghetti. And then I continued to say, oh, that is amazing. I would love spaghetti. Um, after that, some of our friends that were just nearby heard spaghetti. And they said, oh, I want to play too. I would like some too. And I said, oh, do you think our friends can play as well? Other child invited them into the play. And then he said, well, I don't have any menus. So I said, well, we have two menus. What if I share my menu here and they share their menu? Awesome, perfect idea. So then we continued through this play um, that lasted actually for about 10 to 12 minutes. And we continued through this dramatic play of pretending to be in an entire restaurant asking um, questions. And as me, as a teacher, as a facilitator, which is another word that I will explain later, but as a facilitator in that moment, I continued to ask those open-ended questions. I continued to probe their imagination because they were in charge. The child was in charge of his imagination which led other children to add on to that creativity process. And it promoted that creativity that allowed for them to act in that, interact with that meaningful way. Um, something that we talked about again in time and nature and building that confidence to talk about that experience and to talk about what was going on in that piece of interacting with the menus. And one of the things that the environment does that's so phenomenal about the environment in the classroom is that it acts as the third teacher. So when you're interacting with the children in the environment, the environment in a way gives them moments to be creative. It gives them moments to problem solve. It gives them moments to build their confidence because they're learning new things. They're learning new language. 
And as a facilitator, one of the things that I'm doing, I'm observing, I'm listening, and I'm interacting through play. And what does that look like? It's making sure that the environment is supporting in conjunction with the students and the classroom facilitator. So really all three things are coming into play as I'm observing, I'm listening, and I'm interacting through the play with the children. And I'm ensuring that every activity and object in the room has a purpose. So the teacher's job is to really be meaningful in that environment. Does everything have a purpose in the environment? Does everything have a place in the environment? And they're intentional with the environment. And then they're using that environment to the, add to the children's learning and help scaffold. So back to when I'm there in the dramatic play area, I'm scaffolding maybe to where the child possibly doesn't know where that language development might come in play. They might not know the word spaghetti correctly, but as I'm scaffolding, I'm giving those learning memorable opportunities to support by asking those probing questions how, when, where, why. Um, and that reminds me of one of my favorite um, theorists here in the field of child development, um, Lev Vygotsky. He really supports the definition of scaffolding um, through his zone of proximal development. Um, as a teacher, one of the things we do as our role with scaffolding in a place-based environment is to support the children with the guidance while giving the students moments to learn something new, something that's age appropriate, but also something slightly above what they know so we can know where the child might go next. And as the facilitator in the classroom, to support with the scaffolding, in order to help a child reach their zone of proximal development, our job is to ensure that we're helping them make sense of the world they're discovering through play. Um, the zone of proximal development might seem like a big word, but it really just refers to the difference between what a learner can do without help and what he or she can achieve with the guidance from a more skilled partner. Um, the great thing about this is that the skilled partner can be the facilitator who is the teacher. The skilled partner can be a friend. Um, a lot of times you might see that in a preschool program where there's younger preschoolers in the room mixed with that older age group. And the beauty about that is that that older age group is gonna support the younger children for reaching some of those key moments of their zone of proximal development because they're helping Helping them master new skills. They're giving those examples and encouragement and that guidance that they're needing to reach the next level of their zone of proximal development. It's really what you can kind of consider an extra boost. So if you ever been in child care and you ever felt really motivated and got really big confidence, you know, again, one of those things that we're working on is building confidence. How did a teacher make you feel when they built that confidence on helping you reach to where you might go next? Something as simple as building blocks. What happens if you stack it this way? Well, well they might fall down. What happens if you stack three blocks the same way and continue the same pattern? Do you think they'll get taller? A child might feel really achieved by the fact that the person above them or the person more skilled than them had the thought to stack the box correctly. So they might then try that example and they might achieve it. And then that feeling that the child receives when they're achieving that task is where they're going to go next while they're reaching that zone of proximal development. Um, as we're monitoring this process and ensuring, one of the things that we're making sure is that scaffolding happens successfully in our programs. Um, scaffolding is one of the key pieces here as it's just one of those key moments to where children really build that confidence as they're really learning in this natural environment. Teachers are engaged, and as you see through the examples that I'm providing, and as you see when you're passionate um, in this role, you're going to be engaged. So again, it's more than just sitting in the chair and watching the group. It's really focusing on that engagement piece, um, which not only allows creativity, um, but it also allows movements for problem solving. It also allows movements for self-esteem, um, also that social development of making friends and building those long-lasting relationships is where the teacher is engaged. And one of the things and the tools that I like to bring up, if you're not familiar with it um, in the field yet, you really want to look at the class tool. And what the class tool really does is it is an assessment scoring system that 
really scores teacher-child interactions. And I use this in the classroom with um, our staff here, and it really supports them with understanding what their expectation is as the teacher, as the facilitator, supporting them in this play-based environment. How does it support them when asking those probing questions to where the child might go next in their zone of proximal development? So one of the things that the class tool does is it allows the teachers to ask those open-ended questions. Again, who, what, when, where, why? Does it relate back to their family? Is it a personal experience? Is it something that the child might go next for social skills and problem-solving skills? And as the facilitator, as the teacher, you're observing because you're scaffolding this situation with the children in the classroom and their environment. As you're observing and scaffolding, you're looking to see where the child might know, go next. So then you're always maybe taking things in the environment to recreate new experiences. You're remodeling by taking out toys that they might have already had enough experience with, but you might be adding a little bit more enrichment to those toys. Um, things like putting um, blocks in the play area with uh, building maps, um, things like putting menus in the area for restaurant play, uh, menu writing. I've seen aprons and menus to where children can actually practice those writing skills in the area. So one of the things that you're looking for as you're providing the scaffolding, as you're providing the engagement is really making sure you're supporting the child with those interactions and the class tool supports that it supports with those open-ended questions and it gives you a way to support by scoring yourself to make improvements so it doesn't just have a yes or no it really lets you know where you are right now and what you can work on in your classrooms how can you achieve the goal of really supporting being that facilitator to support the children in the classroom and enhancing their play to help them reach their zone of proximal development. One of the next things is really while staying in that zone of proximal development and asking those probing questions, it's all about maintaining children with purposeful play. And the way that we support them with that purposeful play, the way we maintain that purposeful play, um, like I said before, is again, through the time, again, through natural questions and the environment, helping children build their confidence, their attack team on time and nature, supporting them with that time and nature, promoting that creativity in the classroom, allowing children to interact in a meaningful way, allow for those interactions to support their social development to where a child might go next and how do we maintain child engagement through that um, purposeful play is some of the things that I'll be talking about um, next. Um, so one of the things that I like to do um, is really when we're supporting children with purposeful play, there are really three easy things um, that you can remember uh, with purposeful playing. And again, it ties back to this um, class tool and uh, learning through play um, and scaffolding. One of the resources that you can use there also is uh, scaffolding 10 ways to stimulate learning through play on the website of heartmindonline.org. They have lots of resources for scaffolding. And as we go from scaffolding to class tool, to tying class tool into purposeful play, one of the key things to remember um, that I want you to walk away with is three strategies. Information is meaningful. Plan ahead. Provide a sense of security. Um, three easy steps to remember. Again, Information is meaningful. So that means maybe in your circle time, your small group time. Um, so for example, uh, also their work time, which maybe just be their active play in the classroom. Going back to that restaurant example where that play became meaningful. I was starting to give the children that uh, language development by providing them the correct words, uh, the correct pronunciation of the words. Also expanding on their knowledge base um, from their real life experiences that they might've had at home by expanding on those experiences, I'm making that information meaningful. And another step next is to plan ahead. So one of the things that is really great is as a teacher, as a facilitator, is to always be prepared. Um, one of the things that that really allows for you is to make sure that your environment is ready for your students. Um, some of the resources that you might have used before might be Eckers or Sackers. And the Eckers is really that environmental rating skills for early childhood education that supports with the expectations of that environment. So are you preparing your environment? Are you rotating your materials? 
um, activities are ready and prepared and thought out based on the children's interests. And that's one of the things that I love about our program is that the teachers really are able to plan based on the children's interests and curiosity. And one of the things that you're doing is you're taking those pieces of what they're interested in, you're looking at the curiosity and your activities are now thought out and ready based on those interests. And one of the things that that does for children, it is it keeps them engaged because when children have the activities ready and prepared and it's something they're interested in, they're going to stay longer. They're going to create more experiences through what you're teaching them. They're going to allow for more of those creativity moments and meaningful moments for the teacher to make those connections. It's going to allow for the teachers to scaffold the children. When you're planning ahead and you're sitting at the table of what some children might not know, it allows for them to go through the next level as you're supporting them through those steps, through those meaningful questions um, and those trigger questions of who, what, when, where, how, why. Um, the next part is providing a sense of security. Um, this piece, I think, is one of the key pieces, especially right now with COVID um, and post-pandemic, as children are returning to the centers, as children are having childcare come back to a sense of normal. What the biggest key piece now that we're finding is providing that sense of security. And children explore more and they learn more effectively when they feel secure in their environment. Teachers are on their level. Teachers are using soft and reassuring tones. Teachers are supporting them with problem solving and giving them moments to learn from those situations. Teachers are interjecting themselves as the facilitator in the room to support when it's needed. Um, and your teachers are engaged. Children feel safe in the classroom. They're being greeted at the door by their name. Um, the teacher knows the parents. Um, and the environment is reflective of home. It gives them a sense of security, possibly in the cozy area. Um, I know the cozy area was one of my favorite areas in the classroom when I felt sad because it made me feel like I was in my bed. It was cozy. It had pillows. It had stuffed animals. It was warm. And the teachers were there to support me when I needed the help. And so um, those are some of those key pieces that we're looking at as we are um, supporting children in a meaningful way. We're planning ahead and we're providing a sense of security. Um, and by remembering those three steps, we're able to maintain the environment and we're able to maintain child engagement and purposeful play. This podcast is presented to you by Catalyst Family Inc., parent company of Catalyst Kids. Catalyst is the largest nonprofit childcare organization in California, and we encourage children's unique development through play based learning, support busy families through quality care, and strengthen communities by providing a safe place for every child to thrive, offering daycares, preschools, and after school programs, camps, and beyond. Find us at catalystkids.org. Um, how do you maintain child engagement and purposeful play at home? So, yeah, that's a great question. Lexi um, just covered an amazing three-step strategy that, um, you know, at the school level that we can focus on to maintain their their engagement in that purposeful play. Um, at home, we actually can use those exact same strategies. Information is meaningful, plan ahead, and provide a sense of security. So when we say information is meaningful, um, Whenever we sit down to play with our kids, sometimes, you know, a lot of times we don't really know how to start. You know, it's like, wait, where do I start? What do I do? And um, one of the tips that I give to parents all the time is that if you can sit down and, um, you know, talk about uh, follow your, well, first, first and foremost, first and foremost, <laughs> following your child's lead. So for example, as your child is sitting down and they're building a city out of their Legos, right? You know, observe first, see what they're doing. Don't try to insert your own agenda. Instead, see what they're, what they're naturally drawn to as they're building Legos or as they're building their city, asking them that intent, the intentional questions of, oh, I wonder how many buildings you're going to build. And then as it's applicable, the more seriously you treat their play, the more serious your child is going to treat their play. So for example, if I'm seeing my daughter building a city and I ask her questions like, oh, how many, how many, um, you know, buildings are you building? And then I take the time to be like, oh, which one's a red one? Which one's a blue one? Which one's a green one? And then I start adding in all these academic 
perfectly framed stuff to get her ready for kindergarten. Yeah, she'll get something out of it because I'm still, you know, I'm I'm the adult in her life will still interact and it'll be great. But how much more of an in-depth and enriched conversation would you have if you instead ask them questions of, oh, you know, I wonder who lives in your buildings. I wonder what they need to be able to to live in these things. What else should we add? What else can we to like expand their play? Really, the um, that's the beautiful thing about play is that um, there's different types and approaches in terms of how we can address those with our children. But the more that we focus on that idea of relaying information that is meaningful, um, meaningful, meaning what is going to be the most meaningful to your child in that moment, not necessarily what's the most meaningful to you. Um, let them take that lead. Um, the second step to for plan ahead at home, a lot of times, as we said before, it can be a little challenging to figure out, okay, well, where do we start? I, I, you know, uh, I don't even know how to begin. It's been a long time since I've even played, <laughs> you know, it's like for me, I know it's been like, what, like 20 something years like since I, I sat down and like, actually like, you know, played with, uh, played with Barbies or whatever it may be. Um, and so sometimes it helps to have a guide. Um, so there's a really great resource for those of you who just kind of want to get your feet wet and just slowly get started. Um, but it's basically a resource for play based on books. So it's called um, The Truce Guide for Using Children's Books to Promote Play. So if you're one of those people who you know are just needing some inspiration and some ideas and want to figure out a way to kind of um, encourage children to to grow and, and develop from what they're interested in. Um, this resource guide gives you like a book and then it'll also list all of the props and things that you could put in the child's environment to encourage that deeper type of play. Um, so one of the ways that I like to use it as a parent is I'll read to my daughter at home and, um, then the next, uh, you know, I'll read her, like, let's say the, um, a book about the tooth fairy or we'll read just any book. And then what I'll do is like the next day, I'll just try to put things in her room that kind of remind her of what we read in the book the day before and then see rather than me showing her how to use it, I would instead see how she uses it and kind of follows her lead. But if we as parents and as educators as well can be intentional about making sure that we have things in our children's environment to be able to naturally, you know, explore the, um, expand their play, it's going to be great. Um, Another thing that uh, was really great from one of the previous podcasts, uh, you had Mary Van Geffen on, and uh, she had said something that was really resonated as well, where um, the idea of simplifying um, the toys that the children have to inspire deeper play and deeper in imagination. Um, and that is absolutely something that is is so key. If you're able to make sure that um, less is more. So focusing more on those interactions too, and the power of those open-ended, uh, wonder-filled questions. Like, I wonder what this is going to do, or I wonder what you're going to do next. I wonder what we can do. Um, I think you'd be surprised to see exactly the, the new levels of play that, um, uh, that your children can, can receive. Um, and then the last final and final thing is kind of tied with both planning ahead and then providing a sense of security. Um, it's kind of a, a fun trick that, um, you know, I, I, I stumbled across not too long ago um, to kind of blend together planning ahead and providing a sense of security. A lot of times having that consistent routine really helps as well and really making sure that you're blocking out enough time for your child to fully explore the play that they have. So in the classroom environment, we say between 45 to 60 minutes of uninterrupted playtime and something that we strive for in the classroom environment um, as a minimum. So then that way the children have time to basically make their own discoveries, expand on their play, and then, you know, take it from there and, and plan ahead of what they're going to do the following day or do next, right? So in the home environment, a lot of times if we can create a structure in our daily routine or even structure in our home environment for um long-term play over time, it's going to be really great. And um, a strategy that really helps, helped um, me not too long ago is the whole idea of making messy make sense. So what that means um, is my daughter, she loves to just get dirty, right? She loves to, you know, cover her feet with things. She loves to see kind of um, uh, just explore with her own concoctions. She likes to, you know, create things. And as we're talking about the importance of play in nature and the whole idea where, um, you know, as a parent, I have two options, right? I could either pull out a tarp inside our class, inside our um, living room, put out the paints, have her paint on the on the floor, and then I have to constantly be telling her, oh no, Eva, you know, don't don't paint on the floor. Oh no, don't do this, don't do this, right? And have and the more word that she'll hear from me or the the word that she'll hear from me the most is like, no, right? In that scenario. 
Whereas instead, if I see that she is in her play trying to cover herself um, with whether it be paint or soap bubbles or whatever, um, you know, I have that ability as a parent to be like, you know what, like, let's go somewhere where messy makes sense. So instead of going through the effort of taking out the tarp, making my indoor environment conducive for a mess, right? Instead, let's go on a walk outside. Let's go down to the local um, creek or let's go to the park or let's go to our backyard if, if that's something you have. I know at the time it was my apartment. We went on a little walk in our apartment in the rain. <laughs> she had her boots and everything. And we found a massive mud puddle. It was so cool. She was able to stand in the mud puddle with her boots on and be able to see how deep she can get her feet in that mud. And it was so cool because she was able to explore nature get messy in a way that made sense. Because again, when we're outside, it makes sense to see mud and to step in it. Right. And so then whenever we came back inside, you know, we were like, oh, okay, well, how do we go from outside when we're messy with our boots to inside where, you know, the floor, we need to keep it a little bit more clean. So it was really cool to kind of see her go through that experience and, um, be able to find that, that structure. So that way, the next time that she had that need to want to like, you know, cover herself with paint or whatever it may be, you know, her first thought was, Hey mom, can we do this outside? (laughs) So she did eventually, like I gave her some, you know, face paints and some, um, finger paints and stuff. So she was able to kind of recreate that book. Ain't going to paint no more. It was kind of a cool, (laughs) cool thing that we did, um, by Karen Beaumont. That's another one to check out if you have a a child who loves messes and loves to get into things. Um, but we read that book together. And then a couple days later, she's like, I want to paint on myself too. And I didn't have any bath crayons or anything fancy like that. So what we did is we just, we went outside and sure enough, it was really cool. She was able to, to paint on her hands, on her, on her legs. And we were just using the hose to hose her off. And then it worked because now there was a water puddle in our backyard that created another mud puddle. And so it's kind of neat to see how the more that we can get the children outside, the more, um, natural consequences will also happen to where we're able to have that, um, you know, that deeper investigative experience rather than me constantly telling her, oh, no, we can't do that. No, we can't do that. Um, One thing that I didn't mention earlier about um, the importance of playing in nature that I think is really important and kind of cool is that there's a, a theory called attention restoration theory, right? And so basically um, the idea is, is that whenever we are outside in an environment, have you ever noticed that when you're at the beach, you find, as we said earlier, you find yourself where you just instantly feel calm, right? But then when you're inside your, your house, you don't feel calm. You feel kind of that like extra, like, what do we need to do, right? Well, in attention restoration theory, basically um, it's the idea that when we're outside in nature, it it reduces stress and fatigue. Um, And according to this attention restoration theory, it basically says that urban environments require what's called directed attention, which forces us to ignore distractions and exhaust our brains. So basically, like I said earlier in our example, when we're inside and we're painting inside, we're focusing so much on, okay, what can we not do? Or, or how can I make this more exciting to keep my child's engagement in this thing? Like, what else can we do, right? We're constantly thinking about it in that sense. Whereas when we're outside um, in natural environments, we practice an effortless type of attention known as soft fascination that creates feelings of pleasure and not fatigue. And part of it is that because there's constantly things in the outside environment that we cannot control, like bugs flying by, the wind blowing in, the clouds moving, all of these things are happening all around us. So even in those moments where we have, quote unquote, nothing going on, there's always something going on and there's always new things to discover. So anytime that you can take your child outside to have that just open, structured, free time to just play and explore their world, um, you'll be able to really um, uh, cultivate a nice learning environment for them. Yeah, I really love that. Um, And I I know as someone who also does arts and crafts that I personally do them outside on my balcony. And as you mentioned, like I learned less about making a mess you know I don't have to worry about that mess and you know sometimes I still and I spill things and drop things all the time and it's a lot easier just to sweep it up or you know because it's concrete you know it's easy to, to clean up versus if it's inside and so I really love that um and speaking on that why is it important to make playtime a priority well one of the key things that um it focuses on our two key points here. Um, and then also the trauma piece is going to be the cognitive development 
health and overall looking into trauma-informed care. Um, when you're looking at the cognitive development, um, that's something that we have been really summarizing um, through this podcast. And we've talked about the support with their language development, the importance of really giving children that third teacher in the room as the environment, having the teacher be the facilitator to support them with the language development. I'm tying back to that example when the child and me were in the dramatic play area. Um, I'm supporting their cognitive development by giving them and correction without necessarily calling out what the child said was wrong, but correcting it by allowing them to see the correct way to say the word. So they're learning new vocabulary. And one of the great things that it does for children um, is that they're really, really learning problem solving. And um, one of the great things that the teacher um, has put in the environment um, here at the site, um, for example, is a problem solving uh Board. So the children are able to go and see little things that they can do to problem solve on their own before they might want to get help from a teacher. So it also gives them that independency to try it on their own. But at the same time, they're learning those problem solving skills and building that cognitive development. Um, and overall, we've been talking about, you know, that providing that sense of security, supporting the children with that brain development and expanding where the child might go next um, is one of those key pieces. And the next is their overall health. Um, as we've been discussing, um, play-based learning is at the key for children um, to learn through those firsthand experiences. And it really allows for them to develop those skills that they're going to use throughout life while developing a lifelong love of learning, um, reducing anxiety, um, for example example is something that really supports through this play-based learning um, it's allowing children to really learn naturally and when children learn naturally they have less anxiety they're not feeling like there's pressure of what they need to know what they have to know um, from what they might not understand so it reduces that pressure which allows for them to gain new skills um, because when children feel relaxed when they feel that sense of security again as those steps that we talked about before when they're feeling that sense of security they're able to gain new skills from their concept skills. They're able to learn those communication skills, that language development, and so, so much more. And what we've seen with children that has been in these environments, they're happier. Um, they're happier. They make more long-lasting relationships, whether that be with friends, um, communication with family, um, long-lasting relationships that are going to support them through adulthood. Um, I don't know if you ever have an experience back. A lot of times you might not remember kindergarten or first grade, but you might have something you might remember from preschool. Um, you might have something significant. Like Sarah said, you might not remember everything, but you're going to remember that feeling and that feeling helps create that healthy long-lasting relationships that you're going to have with other teachers that feeling a sense of security um, and making sure that you feel safe in that classroom it's really going to spike your curiosity to help you develop more and to help benefit your overall health and brain development mm -hmm, exactly and kind of building off of that um, going into that um, Another, I'm as you could probably tell, I'm very visual in terms of my examples and what I like to reference. And one of the things that um, I reference play as is to think of it as an emergency flotation device as well. Um, so when we're thinking about the fact that play supports with anxiety, it helps children process their feelings, process their emotions. Um, there's also different types of play. So when we as a parent can recognize when our child is going through something or us as a teacher recognize that our students are going through something, a lot of times the warning signs will be in the type of play that they do. Um, something to remember is that a lot of times children recreate their environments through their play or they recreate their thoughts through their play. So if we're able to, as an adult in their life, be able to identify what type of play that child is engaging in, it's going to help us um, to really use it as that emergency flotation device where we're able to identify and see, oh, um, I see that they're using this play right now to help, um, you know, uh, help themselves process something. And now I'm aware to be able to say, oh, okay, what can I do to make sure that I'm supporting them and building off of their play in that way? Um, so I know uh, just for one example, and the reason why I keep saying, you know, emergency flotation device. You think of that circle floaty, right? That you get when you fall off a ship. It's bright orange and it has a specific look for the purpose of being able to spot it from really far away. At the same time, the material that it's made out of, it floats. So even if no one sees you and no one is there to rescue you right away, 
you're going to stay afloat, right? That's how play is for these children's lives as well. Um, if they've gone through an extreme trauma, or if you know, for example, you're about to go through a trauma, whether it be um, you're moving to a completely new state, or you're going to lose a dear family member, whatever it may be, if you can really develop play as a habit for your child to be able to explore the world around them and be able to recreate things that are on their mind, um, you'll be able to also at the same time teach them some really invaluable um, coping mechanisms. So for example, um, if you, not to not to plug a specific cartoon, um, but there's a cartoon that we uh, discovered recently called Bluey. It's on Disney Plus if you have it, um, but it's also available on YouTube if you want to just watch it for free. Um, they're little like seven minute long episodes. Um, but in, in that example, um, there's some episodes in that series that deal with, um, you know, premature babies and death and all these different things. And it's really cool to see how the adults in those episodes really work with sure. the with the children 100% through their play. Um, so for example, um, I know Mr. Mr. Rogers also did this in his first ever episode of um, um, the of his Mr. Rogers Neighborhood show, right? Uh, the very first one actually dealt with death. Um, clips for that can also be found on YouTube. But basically, seeing how um, his little fish in the bowl died in the bag, he was able to actually be like, oh, what happened to this fish? And they were able to actually talk about, and he was able to, you know, ask his viewers through his, his show, you know, about like telling them how he felt about it and also saying, how do you feel when, you know, when some, when something dies or when something isn't anymore, like what, what do you feel about it? And being able to ask those open-ended questions to be able to process those emotions. So there's a lot of really great, um, easy to digest resources to get you started on a trauma-informed care, especially as it relates to play. Um, but the number one, I want to say like, um, you know, I guess other thing to remember for this section too and why it's important is that if you see your child reenacting something that's alarming to you, whether it's they take a baby doll and they're throwing it against a wall or they're, you know, pretending to shoot somebody or stab somebody or whatever it may be, um, rather than immediately intervening and being like, oh, no, 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 don't do that. We don't do that. It's not appropriate, right? Um, Number one, instead, you know, respond to it from that level-headed, very calm place of, hey, you know, I see that the baby is, you know, hitting, hitting its head on the wall. Ouch, that must hurt. You know, let's talk about it, you know, and it doesn't have to be deep, but, you know, just basically saying, I wonder what those, I wonder questions are very, very powerful. I wonder how we can keep the baby safe. What are some feelings that you're feeling right now? You know, just asking those investigative questions. Most of the time, it may be nothing. Most of the time, it may be, I just want to throw the baby Oh, I see you're throwing the baby. Are you wanting to throw something? Do you want to throw the ball instead? That way we don't hurt the baby doll because that could hurt the baby. What do you think? Right. So instead of shame or blame into the conversation, you're redirecting that, that need that they have in that moment. And then at the same time, the conversation may go a very different way. They may go with, oh, well, I saw this happen or, oh, well, what would happen if I get hurt? You know, and then it, at least you're able to then identify those cases of need whenever it's, it's available. And that's a whole other topic in itself for sure. <laughs> so if you find yourself, you know, in need of, you know, um, that kind of support or if you're, if you're finding that you want more information about that, there's a really amazing um, resource online as well. So Valerie, I don't know if you want to talk about the Fez there because I know in the Fez, I think they also link like our community service resources and stuff too. So, um, I, I really um, appreciate that you brought that up and I think that this is definitely really uh, important Information, especially to our educators out there who are listening. Um, and so with that in mind, um, you know, I, as we close out, um, if you could tell me any sort of uh, final thoughts that you have uh, or any helpful, additional helpful resources uh, you'd like to share. Um, I know on our website, uh, we also have the Family Enrichment Zone. Um, so I'll be linking that in the footnotes um, for y'all to check out. Um, so yeah, um, if you have any final thoughts and resources, um, just let me know. If you're needing more support with trauma-informed play and how to support your children that you serve, um, there's a really amazing resource called Using Play to Build Resilience and Promote Healing. Um, it has the first page of it has just an overall description of um, the process that play has in helping children heal and cope with their world around them. And then the second page is a list of strategies and things that you can do to help your child through difficult situations. 
You know, just remembering, you know, I think the key thing to remember is that, you know, overall children are naturally curious and just allowing them to learn through that natural curiosity is what play-based learning is all about. Um, I think that it really supports the children with those long-lasting relationships and really supports them with going through life, um, going through from childhood, um, through their adolescence, through adulthood. These are some key tools that um, we've given that really can support children um, and come back um, from not just using it in early childhood education, but some of these things are also being used in uh, middle schools and high schools. So if you feel like you have older children and you're wondering how this might apply for them, um, feel free to dive deep into some of those resources because they're definitely applicable um, for children older age as well. Absolutely. I also think it's very important to remember to just keep it, keep it simple and take the pressure off just because, you know, we maybe you aren't used to playing with children very often, or, you know, especially after hearing a podcast like this and hearing that there's many different types of play, sometimes it can be overwhelming. And you may ask yourself, am I doing enough? Are, are my children learning fast enough? What are, what are we doing? Um, you know, the more that you can keep it simple for yourself, remember those three strategies of information is meaningful plan ahead and provide a sense of security. Um, I think that, you know, you'll have a really strong foundation. And again, just remember that key takeaway too of um, look for information that's meaningful for your child and build upon that information. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've had children, you know, they, they come to me with their original idea that they're excited and passionate about that. They're, that's meaningful to them, even if it's just Pokemon or something that they saw on TV, right? It's something that they're really excited about. By me taking that moment out of my day to express questions and just express interest in what they're interested in and say, oh, tell me more about the Pokemon. What do you like about that? And they're telling me about all the videos that they that they watch or whatever. And then I ask that building question after it. That's all it takes is just to scaffold and just build upon their um, their interests. So yeah, we're happy happy playing, guys. Make sure to take take time to play <laughs> with your with uh, your kids and just with your students. Everyone, it's it's good. Awesome. Very cool. All right. Well, thank you both so much for taking the time to spend with us today and to provide us, uh, provide us with your valuable insight. We have so much to unpack and dive into, and I'm really looking forward to sharing these resources with our educators and families. Thank Absolutely. you for coming. Yes. Awesome. Thank you thank for you having so us. Much. Thank you. Bye. 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 Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Shine, inspiring conversations around children, family, and early child development. Please subscribe so that you don't miss an episode and connect with us. You can find us at catalystkids.org shine.